Uh, let me just give you a little bit of an overview of what we've been studying, and hopefully if you haven't joined us, uh, this will be kind of an invitation. Maybe this will pique your interest in coming out at uh, 945 and, and uh, joining us for, for um, the Psalms right now uh, in Sunday school, and then again in two months back in First Peter. But uh, we have been going through First Peter for some time now, and First Peter is broken down into three main sections. Uh, the first section is chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, and Peter's focus is the salvation of the believer. And so what we're reading about in those passages really emphasize the wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, the section that we are finishing right now is the submission of the believer. So how we are to submit to God by submitting in various situations in this life that will bring glory to him and a good testimony to those around us. And so we're finishing that up this morning. That's from chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12. And then the suffering of the believer, we will begin that the next time we're together for Sunday school. And that's chapter 3, verse 13. And that will finish out uh, the first epistle of Peter in chapter 5, verse 14. And so uh, the way this breaks down, and, and let me just uh, go through this quickly, because it does tie into our message this morning. And I think that if you have a little understanding of what we've been looking at specifically in this second portion of Peter, uh, it's going to make it much more clear as we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 this morning. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, we see here that Christians are called aliens and strangers. We are called to live sanctified lives, to have behavior that is excellent among the Gentiles, that as the unbelieving world is observing us, they will see our good works. Uh, there are times when they are going to revile us, they are going to mock us, they are going to, uh, to speak evil things about us, but Peter says that when the Lord visits them uh, in his day of visitation, and we understand that to mean that the day that some of them will be saved, the day that he comes to them with salvation, that at that point, they will remember the good works of those that they once ridiculed. And that's going to bring glory to God as it comes full circle and they realize that at one time I was mocking the very truth of the one who saved me. And so we see there that our actions are very important. We are aliens and strangers who are to live these sanctified and submissive lives. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we see that we are called to be submissive to civil authorities. Uh, to kings and to governors, to various political leaders. And the understanding is, is that God has established authority in the land. And that because God has established authority, we are to honor those offices and those positions of authority. It doesn't mean that every human leader is God-honoring, but we as God's people are to honor the authority that's been established. Of course, there are times when the government uh, will ask us to do things that are unbiblical, and at those times, we must say we must obey God rather than man, and we face the consequences. Uh, but unless they are asking us to do something unbiblical, uh, we are to be submissive to them and live in sanctification to glorify God and, again, to be good examples to those around us. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, uh, it takes it into the workplace. Uh, this focuses on a servant and master relationship. And in this context, it's most likely speaking of a domestic servant, so a house servant. And Peter says, whether your masters are good or they are unreasonable, you are to submit to their authority. You are to submit to them as you would unto God. Uh, for our day and age, this might be something more along the lines of an employer-employee relationship, uh, where maybe you have a, a supervisor, a manager, an owner of a company that you work for, who is unreasonable. They mistreat you. They speak ill of you. They, they're not nice people. They're not kind people. And we have to understand that we still have to uh, submit to the authority. And again, as long as it's not anything that's unbiblical, we submit to that for the glory of God and for the sake of his name. Peter then takes a little bit of a break of giving a direct exhortation. And in verses 21 through 25, he directs his readers to look at the example of Christ. And as we're looking at the example of Christ, there was a heavy focus on Isaiah 53. If you're familiar with Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 is the prophecy of the coming suffering servant. That the Messiah who was going to come to fulfill the prophecy is to save his people, the one who was sent by God. That he is going to suffer. He is going to suffer unjustly. And when he suffers, he does not return insult for insult. He does not seek vengeance. He entrusts himself to the Father's care, and he waits for the Father to vindicate him. 
And so when we look at suffering unjustly and being submissive to those who are not kind, to those who are abusive, we look at Christ and say our Savior suffered the most injustice that anyone could ever experience. And he is the perfect example of how to suffer well, how to suffer for the glory of God. And so that's Peter's focus there as he wraps up chapter 2. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the past two weeks, we have been studying about what it looks like to be a, a husband and a wife in situations of submission and sanctification. In verses 1 through 6, the focus is on wives who have husbands who are unbelievers, those who are disobedient to the word. And what Peter says is that, that without a word, without you complaining, without you, you uh, uh, proclaiming the gospel to him, and, and, and the reason for that would be is that women in that day and age really weren't listened to. They would rather be seen than heard, or, or rather the man would rather see them than hear them. Uh, and so it wasn't the place for the woman to speak out. She may not have had the opportunity to share the gospel. She was to be quiet and to know her role. Uh, and, and again, that's not what we're saying the Bible teaches, but that's what the culture was of the day. And so Peter's telling these ladies that even though you may not have a platform to proclaim the gospel, your sanctified and submissive lives will speak volumes. That you focus on the internal and not the external alone. Don't focus uh, uh, heavily on your physical appearance. Focus on the inward beauty and let your husband see that, and then uh, be, be uh, gentle and quiet in your spirit. And that testimony, God can use that to win your husband over, to win him to Christ. And so there we see that exhortation to the wives. And the husbands were told to understand their wives, to, to know what God has called them to, to, to really pay attention to their wives and to know, uh, you know their likes and dislikes and, and things that uh, they, they enjoy and they don't enjoy and things that would bother them and just all sorts of things, all various ways that they would understand them. And he says, and honor them. Honor them not just as your wife, but honor them as fellow heirs to the kingdom of God. And so Peter really gives a, a wonderful uh, presentation of what it looks like to have a healthy marriage that is founded on sanctification and submission. And so that brings us to chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, which is our text for this morning. And we're going to see here that the same attitude of sanctification and submission is to be applied to the body of Christ as well. And uh, as I saw this morning, as we were greeting one another... I was standing there thinking to myself, this is wonderful. I love the fact that we are so excited to be here, to see each other, to embrace one another, to, to greet one another. And, and as we're looking at the passage this morning, uh, I do believe that what we see here in Peter's exhortation, we see in our congregation. I've said it once, I've said it many times, and I'll continue to say it. I believe the Lord has blessed our congregation. Uh, what we see here today uh, is not very common, especially when you're talking about the blending of two congregations. And uh, we have to give glory to God and to know that we are not perfect. There is no perfect church. There is no perfect congregation. But the Lord's work, his hand is definitely upon us. And so as I, I come to this text this morning, uh, I want you to understand that the, the exhortations are going to come. And, and you're going to be asked to examine yourself and to see where you are, are doing well and where you are failing and where you need to, to change some things. But I also want you to understand that I share the same feeling that Paul had for the Thessalonians, that they were good examples of a transformed person in Christ. They were good examples of loving God and loving the brethren. But he exhorted them, excel still more. And so as we come to our passage this morning and we look at these exhortations, uh, I would say follow them, uh, examine them, consider them, and even if you are fulfilling them, excel still more because we could never plateau in our sanctification and submission for the glory of God. Let's take a look here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, Peter writes, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face, face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Fathers, we come before you this morning and we come to your word. We pray that you will give us understanding of the true meaning of the text. We pray that we will see not just the true meaning, but that we will be able to apply it to our lives this very day. That we will take these truths, we will act upon them to be hearers and doers of the word so that your name will be glorified and that we will see growth within the body of Christ. Not simply growth in numbers, but that we will see ourselves growing in our love for you and our love for one another so that the world will see that the love that we have is genuine from you and that there is unity and harmony within the body of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to break down this passage this morning. We're going to look, first of all, in verse 8, at the sanctified and submissive attitude. And so there we're going to see five different attitudes that we should have that demonstrate sanctification and submission. And then in verse 9, we're going to see sanctified and submissive actions. When you possess these attitudes of sanctification and submission, then the, the natural outcome is going to be that, that these actions flow from you. Because of what you are inside, that's going to uh, impact who you are outside. And so we're going to see the attitude and the actions. And then Peter takes us back to the Old Testament. We'll go back to Psalm 34 to see an example of sanctified and submissive self-control and how that uh, directly impacts uh, your life here on earth. So let's begin in verse 8 with the sanctified actions. You know, when we have our faith in Jesus Christ, we know that there are many blessings that come with it. Uh, we have our forgiveness of sins. We know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know that we have the promise of glory. Uh, but the Bible does not promise perfect relationships. It doesn't promise financial prosperity. It doesn't promise that you won't have uh, uh, sickness or, or, or problems with health. It does promise blessings that we have in Christ as far as salvation is concerned. But here on earth, we have to work. We have to work to maintain relationships, to have good relationships, God-honoring relationships, whether it's in your home or, or your place of work or at school or even within the body of Christ. Now, you might wonder what this picture is up on the uh, screen. Uh, that picture is of two sheep who are fighting, believe it or not. Uh, if you look at the uh, one on the left, you might see up on its shoulder a little bit of blood there. Uh, these animals are not always as kind as gentle and gentle as you might think. Uh, I was reading an article earlier this week, and there was a farmer who said that sometimes as he's watching his sheep, it seems like out of sheer boredom they pick fights with one another. And there were some videos of them out there just kind of ramming each other and chasing each other and nipping at one another. And you would think, I wouldn't expect that from a little lamb. I wouldn't expect that from sheep. We understand Jesus is the good shepherd and we are his sheep, but understand this. Sometimes his sheep fight. Sometimes his sheep bite. Sometimes his sheep just want to pick a fight. Uh, maybe out of sheer boredom for who knows. Um, it happens. It would be great to say that within the body of Christ we never see conflict, that we never do anything to offend someone or that no one would offend us, that we always say the right things that we always have the right words, the, the, the gracious attitude, but that's not the case. We are saved people, but we are not perfect people. And so there are times when even within the body of Christ, we need an attitude adjustment. We need to put ourselves in check. And that's kind of what Peter is doing here. He is reminding us and exhorting us of what must be seen within the body of Christ in order to maintain unity and to maintain harmony and, and to be a God-honoring congregation. And again, the sanctification and the submission, they are absolutely essential if you want to see this kind of growth and uh, a God-honoring congregation. If you take a look at verse 8 here, we see that Peter begins, and he, he focuses on these attitudes, and there's five that he mentions. Uh, these five are harmony and sympathy, brotherly love and, and a kind heart or compassion, and humility. I think it's interesting to note, I appreciated this. This comes from Peter David's commentary on 1 Peter. When you're talking about these, these, uh, these attitudes here, he says the first and last adjectives, meaning harmony and humility, they speak of how one thinks. The second and fourth, sympathy and compassion or kind-heartedness of how one feels. And the love of those 
in the Christian community is in the center. It's interesting as you look at that, you see, you see the, the, uh, the, the thought life out here, and then you see how you feel, and in the center of that is the love for one another. It's almost as if Peter is writing this, and God has directed him to write this to demonstrate that love is at the core of a God-honoring congregation, the core of God-honoring relationships. That if we want to be uh, um, harmonious and think with humility, and we want to show sympathy and kindness, we must love. And if love is not the core, then there is nothing holding it together. And so when we look at that, it seems very uh, strategic here. That, that this is how we must think, these are the attitudes we must have, but at the center of it is love for one another. When we talk about harmony, it's, it's speaking of being of one mind, like-mindedness. Okay? This describes more than just uh, uh, the, the opinion of being harmonious or, or being harmonious in your opinions, uh, saying that we, we agree about certain things, whether it's political or doctrinal, it's beyond that. Now, we do have a statement of faith. If you look at our, our documents, you can find them online or you can get print copies. You will see what we believe as a congregation, what we believe as teachers, what we, what we agree to teach and what we agree not to teach. And, and those who are members of this congregation, we are in harmony with doctrine. And that's necessary. It's absolutely necessary to be harmonious in your doctrine. But this goes beyond just a doctrinal harmony. This is a, a, a like-mindedness, as Iber says, it's unity of heart because of a similar inner experience. And when you're talking about Christians, what similar inner experience can we say we have all had? It's our salvation. It's Christ transforming us. And so we can get together and say, no matter you know, how old you are or I am, or, or regardless of your education or your, your, your level of wealth or, or your upbringing or whatever it is, we have this in common. We have been saved by Jesus Christ. The love of God has been poured out upon us and within us. We have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. These things we have in common. And so that brings this harmonious sentiment, this harmonious attitude. Is look at who we are in Christ. You know, Paul addressed the need for harmony within the church. Again, I mentioned you don't always find it within the congregation. And here, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, uh, there seems to be an indication that there was some trouble in the church in Philippi. As Paul writes, he says, I urge uh, Euodia and I, I urge uh, Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, why would he say that? He would say that because at this moment in time, they were not living in harmony. We don't know exactly what the problem was. We don't know exactly what the contention was. We don't know exactly what the wedge was that was put between these women. But Paul's exhortation to the church, to the leaders, to the deacons of that church, the overseers, he said, I urge them. There needs to be harmony. There cannot be disharmony within this congregation, within any congregation. You know, we need to pursue harmony at all costs, strive to maintain it. It is interesting to see that in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, as he is praying for his disciples, he says this in John chapter 17, verses 21 through 23, that they may all be one, he's speaking of his disciples, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. One of Jesus' requests for his disciples was that they would be unified, that they would experience harmony. Not only is that good for them, but it's a testimony to the world around them that we truly are of God. I mean, what do you think an unbelieving world thinks when they see people within the church fighting with one another? They can look at that and say, well, we see that outside of the church. Why would we ever be compelled to join that? And it's a valid question. And so we understand here that harmony is something we need to pursue. It's not just saying that we are on the same page when it comes to doctrine. It's we are like-minded because of who we are in Christ, because of the love that God has poured out within us that we should be in harmony with one another. 
So that's the first sanctified and submissive attitude is harmony. The second one is, is uh, sympathy, okay? being sympathetic. This is sharing feelings, including joy and sorrow. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, uh, 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This means that, that it is more than just the, the Sunday morning, good morning, how are you, kind of the shallow greeting that many people will offer. As I said this morning, watching you greet one another, I didn't really see a superficial, shallow, you know, good morning, good morning, good morning, kind of a, a very cold and, and callous thing. Uh, this, this love for one another, this harmony, is going to uh, manifest in how we feel about one another. That, that if, if someone in the congregation is suffering, that's going to hit everyone at home. Because we're going to know that one of our dear brothers or sisters in Christ is in a situation of suffering. If they're in a situation of rejoicing, we're going to rejoice with them. Because if something good happens to them, we're happy. We're thankful. If something bad happens to them, then that impacts us. I mean, we will often see that within our own families, but this is talking about the body of Christ. And even though that many of us here are not blood relatives, the, the, the bond that we have in Christ, and we're going to talk about this in our next point, is strong and sometimes stronger than with our own family members. And so this is more than just uh, saying that, that I'm, I'm happy to see you. This truly is to, to, to feel joy and sorrow with them, to experience that with them, to go through it with them. And we, we don't want to, uh, to, to lie to anyone and say, I know exactly what you're going through in a specific situation, unless, of course, we do. But uh, for them to know that uh, if they hurt, we hurt. That we're praying for them. That we're here for whatever they need. Uh, to listen to uh, you know, a listening ear or a shoulder to cry on or someone to vent to or whatever it might be. That, that we understand that, that we all experience the, the brokenness of this world. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are willing to share that with one another. We understand that Jesus, again, is our example. He demonstrates the fact that he has sympathy for his people. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ is known as our sympathetic high priest. How can he possibly know what it's like to go through what you've gone through? Well, because... He came into this world. He came into his creation. He took upon himself human flesh. He lived like one of us. He lived as one of us. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be cold and hungry and offended and ridiculed and to be happy and to feel sorrow because he was 100% man while he was 100% God. And so we understand here that he absolutely knows what we go through. And when we are, are suffering or when we are, are, are feeling that joy, he knows those emotions. He knows what it's like. And so we as his people uh, who are united in our, our salvation and in our love, we need to understand that and to strive to be sympathetic. Alan Stibb says this, that those who are united by a common spiritual mind should be moved by or sensitive to the same spiritual emotions. And so if we have the same convictions, then what bothers one is going to bother us. What brings joy to one will bring joy to others. And so the harmony of mind will cultivate within us a genuine concern and a connection for others within the body of Christ. So we want to have that harmony. We want to have that sympathy for one another. And then we see here in the center uh, the third attitude, and that is the, the brotherly attitude or brotherly love. This is a compound word, and uh, a little quiz for you here. When you see these two words, phileo and adelphoi, does that bring anything to mind? Philadelphia, right? And Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love, right? And so when we, what was that, the Eagles? That's what I thought, yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks football. And if anybody else wants to throw out any Star Wars or X-Files references, I'll probably be happy to hear that too. But yeah, the city of brotherly love. Right? I mean, we think about that. We, maybe we don't know how it got its name, but when we look at it, that's what it means, is that you come here, and it's the city of brotherly love. Well, when people come to visit our congregation, it should be the congregation of brotherly love. They should see here that we truly love one another. 
And as we're talking about this brotherly love, understand that in, in secular Greek, this always referred to love between physical siblings, for actual family members. But when you're looking at Scripture, you're looking at the Bible, and you're looking at Christian literature, it's always referring to the love that you share within the body of Christ, which is not primarily focused on the blood relationship but it's the spiritual relationship, knowing that we are all children of God, whether we are Jewish or we are Gentile. Right? And you go back to uh, Galatians 3.28, right? whether Jew or Gentile or slave or free, male or female, we have all things in common in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Now again, this is no surprise that Jesus focused on this. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, love is a hallmark of Christianity. When you think about people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ, one of the first things that we think of should be is that we have love for God and love for others. And in this context, specifically, love for one another. Uh, John pointed that out as he was uh, recording Jesus' words in, in his gospel, and in 1 John, we see this. We just read this not too long ago. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And so if we say we are lovers of God, that we love Jesus Christ, then the natural uh, uh, flow, the outflow of that should be loving his children. If we are truly part of the family of God, then we are going to love the family of God. And so again, as we go back to what Peter David said, that's kind of the core, the glue that holds all of these things together that makes these attitudes possible. Loving God and loving one another. Let's look at the fourth one here, and that is kind-heartedness or compassion. Uh, this is an interesting word. It means uh, intestines or organs. And I quickly thought about uh, Pastor Scott teaching Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verse 9, when he was talking about glory, and that's our English translation is glory. But another meaning was liver. Am I not mistaken? Liver. And if you go back to chapter 16, verse 7, I believe that he mentions kidneys. And the understanding there, whether you're looking at the Hebrew or you're looking at the Greek, is it's not talking about the actual organ. It's talking about deep inside. Because we know that's where the organs are, right inside here. So when we talk about the liver or the kidneys, you know, what we're really saying is that this is deep down inside. I, I feel compassion deep inside for you. Or, or the, the kind-hearted attitude comes from deep within. It's that seed of affection of who we are as human beings. And that's the idea here, is that it's not a superficial concern. It's a deep concern for one another. It's deep compassion, deep kindness for one another. Paul emphasizes this in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And so here as he's exhorting his brethren in Ephesus, we take that, exhorta that exhortation and we, we understand that we are to be kind to one another. We are to be tender-hearted or compassionate, forgiving each other. Why? Because we've received these things from Christ. He was kind to us. He was compassionate to us. He forgave us. And if he gave that to us, who are we to withhold that from the body of Christ? And so we see here that it's, it's, it's the natural uh, uh, response. It's the expectation that if you've truly been loved by God and you've experienced his compassion, his kindness, then you're going to show that to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, going back to Peter David's commentary, he says, Christians care deeply about fellow Christians so that the suffering of one believer becomes the suffering of the other. Christians are to be emotionally evolved, or involved with each other. And so again, this kind of uh, goes back to the idea of, of uh, sympathy and compassion and the kind-heartedness is also part of that. And so we see here that if we truly are one, we have that harmony, then we are going to be tied emotionally as well. And that's where we talk about that, that inner, deep-seated feeling of compassion and kindness for one another. And so that's our fourth sanctified and submissive attitude is a kind-hearted attitude or compassionate attitude. The fifth one is, is humble, humility. Okay, literally to be humble-minded. 
Right? Uh, this means that you, you have a modest opinion of yourself, that, that you're not thinking too highly of yourself. Right? Now, we see examples of the opposite of this throughout the New Testament. When you look at the life of Christ and you see those who would oppose him, uh, groups like the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they were definitely not humble people. They were self-righteous. They were haughty. They were the religious elite. They had the holier-than-thou mentality. And Christ constantly called them out. They were called hypocrites. They were called a brood of vipers. Uh, as we were studying on Wednesday, uh, Jesus was, was talking about, he was, he was teaching a parable. He was being rebuked because uh, these religious leaders saw that he was associating with sinners. Uh, and, of course, we know everyone is a sinner, so how can you say that he's associating with sinners? Anyone he would come into contact with is a sinner. But in their minds, these were really bad sinners, and, and we're not. They are. And so Jesus tells a parable, and he says, you know, which shepherd do you know who would not go after one sheep who strayed? He'll leave 99 behind to go find the one. And when the one is found and the one is returned home, there's great rejoicing. And he says, likewise, when a sinner repents, when one sinner repents, heaven rejoices. And he says, that's because the one sinner, you know, needs to repent, but not the righteous. The righteous don't need to repent. And what he was telling them was, yeah, you're the, the righteous in your own minds. You don't need to repent. You think so highly of yourself. You would never stray. You're like the 99 faithful. But this one sinner, that's the one we went after, and that's the one that they repent over, or they rejoice over. And so even in, in ways that were not so direct, he would expose their hypocrisy, expose their arrogance. Well, we understand that God has much to say about pride. Proverbs 16, verses 18 through 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Those who have a, a, an arrogant attitude, those who think highly of themselves, who are proud, they are setting themselves up for a fall. And that's why both Peter and Paul emphasize this in a number of places. Here's a few verses. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. It means you better have a right perspective of yourself. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, later in his epistle. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. There's no room in the body of Christ for self-exaltation. We have a proper estimate of who we are, who we are in Christ, who we are because of Christ, but not more than that. And God is the one who will exalt us at the proper time. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. I mean, that verse alone is an entire sermon series. How do we think of others as more important than ourselves? How do we do that? Because humanly speaking, that's not natural. We think of ourselves first. And then who does Paul present as the ultimate example of humility? Just a couple of verses later, Jesus Christ. The greatest example as he came to his creation. That's what we call the incarnation. When he stepped into humanity, took upon himself humanity, and he gave up his glory to a certain degree in order to come and save us. Knowing, as Isaiah 53 says, that he would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That he would be oppressed, he would be ridiculed, he would be mocked, he would be rejected. And yet he still came. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what was the result of that humble act? Our salvation. The fact that you and I can sit here this morning and say, praise God that my sins are forgiven. Praise God that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that I know where I'm going when this life ends. Thank you that there's nothing in the world that can separate me from your love that I have in Jesus Christ. Why? All because Christ humbled himself and he came down and he died for us. And so when we are called to, to, to pursue and to strive after and to manifest these attitudes in our lives, 
We look at Christ as the primary example and say our Messiah left us a wonderful example to follow and look at what it accomplished and, and think about what it can accomplish within the body of Christ. If we all work on these areas, and if we just take a look at, at this coming year, I know it's, we're already past January, but if we were to look at these five attitudes and say, well, these have become resolutions for this year, and if we all strive to, to, to keep these and to increase in these areas, what do you think our congregation will look like this time next year? It can only be better. And that is why Paul tells the, the uh, Thessalonians, and, and I remind you this morning, to excel still more. We do see these within the body here in Anaheim, and I praise God for that. But we need to continue and never feel like we have reached the pinnacle of sanctification and submission. We need to practice these and excel still more because sanctified and submissive attitudes, they will produce sanctified and submissive actions. Let's look at verse 9. When we go to here, uh, just a few verses earlier, back in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, uh, Peter gave Christ as the example. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So what we see here in verse 9 really is the teaching of non-retaliation. That when you are attacked, the proper Christian response is not to retaliate. It's not to, to be uh, the one who says, well, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. If you think you're going to get away with it, just wait and see. That's not the mentality that we see. In Christ, who is the example, we see here that he suffered. He was reviled. But in his actions and in his attitude, in his words, he committed no sin. And so as we look here in this verse, we're going to see these, these contrasting examples. There's, there's first the negative, do not do this, and then there's the positive. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not repay insult for insult. Instead, here's your positive example, here's your positive exhortation. Instead, offer a blessing. So let's take a look at these contrasting concepts here okay not returning evil for evil or insult for insult uh, it, it means you're you're not offering this as, as recompense evil for evil you're, you're not giving back violence for violence or or verbal assault for verbal assault we're not to have the mind that we are you know these these uh, spiritual vigilantes that we are to lash out at anyone who attacks us we need to make sure that we always leave that for the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When we talk about this evil for evil, it's talking about these, these mean-spirited acts, base or, or morally depraved acts, where people just are mean-spirited. And it happens even within the body of Christ. Unfortunately, it does. And so if somebody is attacking you in, in actions, whatever it might be, and, and Peter's very general here, evil for evil, insult for insult. He doesn't give specifics. I kind of have a feeling that if he gave specifics, we might limit ourselves just to those things. So it's a little more broad than that. If anyone is acting evil against you, they are, are, are pouring evil out upon you, well, you don't return that evil. Again, Paul spoke to this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. So here again, the teaching of non-retaliation to the church in Thessalonica. Don't get in the habit of returning evil for evil. Can you, now, now let me ask you this. Can you finish this phrase? Maybe you can. I don't get mad, I get what? Even, right? And some of you were holding back. You didn't want to admit that you knew that or maybe used that. That's all right. Thank you for your, your bravery there. I don't get mad, I get even, Right? We may not think that or say that. Sometimes we might think that. If you think you're going to get away with that, just you wait and see. How dare you say that to me? How dare you treat me that way? And then we start to, to go through all the scenarios of how we can retaliate. Sometimes it's very just in your face. Sometimes it's very passive, right? The, the passive aggression that, that we often will use, 
that happens. There's no room for that within the body of Christ. You know, you, you know what getting even accomplishes in these situations? All it does is increase the evil, increase the sin. There is no resolution. There is no restoration. There is no reconciliation when it's evil for evil. We need to break the chain of that evil and, and resist the desire to retaliate. And it's not just in the actions, it's in the words. Insult for insult. Back in verse 23 of chapter 2, we see Jesus was reviled, but he did not retaliate with equally sinful words. Think of all the times in the Gospels where people were verbally attacking Christ, even saying that he was of the devil, that he got his power from Beelzebub. I mean, you, you think about the kind of assault and the attacks that he endured far more than we ever will. I mean, how many times did the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those accusers when he was on trial and, and the witnesses to his crucifixion and even, even a thief on the cross attacking him verbally, and yet he never retaliated? You know, we've heard the phrase, two wrongs don't make a right, and that's true. When you look at this situation, you know, you know two sinful, mean-spirited, verbal assaults, it doesn't make anything right. And so Peter is telling his brethren, do not retaliate evil for evil and insult for insult. It accomplishes nothing good. So we don't want to get in the habit of following our, our knee-jerk emotional reactions. We want to make sure that we think about what needs to be said, that, that we are prayerful in our decisions of how to respond uh, so that we make sure that we are not dishonoring God and, and tearing down the body of Christ. We are to build up the body of Christ, to edify, not to destroy. And that's why Peter says, rather than the insult for insult or the evil for evil, back in verse 9, but giving a blessing instead. Okay? So the, the, the idea here of blessing is, is where we get our English word eulogy, eulogeo. It means to speak a good word about someone. Okay? So rather than attacking those who attack you, Find ways to be a blessing to them. That goes against pretty much everything we feel as human beings. I mean, as Christians, there should be a, a change in how we think and how we feel and how we, we, we want to, to honor God, but it's still difficult at times. And, and there's various things that can, can uh, um, you know, uh, influence why we, we sometimes fail in these areas. I mean, life is difficult. Raising a family is difficult. Being a Christian is difficult. Living in, in this country and with, with the, the uh, financial situation and the political situation and what's happening overseas, those things wear on us. And sometimes we, we will snap and we'll just say things we shouldn't say or think things we shouldn't think. So it takes work to give a blessing or to be a blessing rather than to insult or to... Uh, say things that we really shouldn't say or do things that we really shouldn't do. But what Peter here is saying is that, that rather than responding to the one who offends you with, with a like evil, whether it's actions or words, that, that you offer a blessing. Okay? That's why Peter says, offer the blessing. And then, and then he, he explains why we should do this. He gives us the basis for it, the foundation. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Okay. We might think, well, why should I bless the one who's attacking me? Why should I say something nice about someone who's just slandering me? Someone who's dragging my name through the mud? Why should I be nice to them? Why should I bless them? Well, think about how you were blessed. You might say, well, how am I blessed? Well, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, maybe even within the body of Christ, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. When you read those verses and really think about what Peter's saying, have you been blessed? Have you received a blessing? Multiple blessings. Heavenly blessings, glorious blessings. And when you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, instead of retaliation, offer a blessing. Why? Because you are the recipient of glorious heavenly blessings. That should be motivation enough for you to bless others because you are so richly blessed. And so he's putting that little seed right there in our minds. Remember what has been given to you. So he points back to the blessings we've already received and the promises of more to come And he uses that as the basis and the motivation to say, don't retaliate. Instead, be a blessing. You know, take a look at uh, Romans 12. It's on the screen, but uh, turn to your Bibles if you'd like. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again there, the same teaching, the same concept. Don't retaliate, leave room for God's vengeance, And rather than repaying evil for evil or insult for insult, offer a blessing, offer good, and you will overcome evil with good. Now, hopefully, we don't ever consider anyone in the body of Christ an an enemy, but sometimes it might feel that way. And sometimes we're on the receiving end, and sometimes we might be the offenders. And so sometimes we have to repent or we have to be the ones who are kind of taking the higher ground and saying, I'm not going to go down that road. And so we have to think, when, when we are being attacked and when we're being reviled and, and, and when people are not treating us the way that they should, how do we respond? Well, it cannot be in retaliation. It must be to be a blessing to them. And again, as we saw in, in Romans, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That means do all that you can do. You cannot control what anyone else does. You cannot control what anyone else says or how they think. But you can control what you do and how you think. And so you do all that you can to keep the peace. You do all that you can to extend the olive branch. You do all that you can to bless and not curse. And if the other simply doesn't want to to respond in a like manner, well, you can stand before God and say, Lord, you know that I tried, and I'm continuing to try. Here, I think, is some practical advice on how you can be a blessing. The blessing that a Christian is to give to the reviler includes finding ways to serve him, praying for his salvation or spiritual progress, so here, whether it's a believer or unbeliever, expressing thankfulness for him, speaking well of him, and desiring his well-being. Very practical ways of doing this even if the other person does not want to reconcile. You can still be a blessing as you go before the Lord on their behalf. And so we see the continuity here, whether it's Old or New Testament. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, it comes back to love. If you love God, you will love your neighbor. Are people within the body of Christ our neighbors? Absolutely. And so we need to make sure we love God so we can love one another properly. Let's look at the last point here. And this is going to go quickly because this really is uh, kind of restating what we've already seen. And it's an Old Testament example, so I won't belabor what's uh, the points here. But just to see that, that Peter has in mind that this is a, a, um, a timeless truth. That whether you're in the Old or the New Testament, you find the same principles, the same concepts here. And so Peter is quoting Psalm 34, okay, verses 12 through 16 specifically. 
And as he goes back to the Old Testament, it's an example of sanctified and submissive self-restraint. Okay? In Psalm 34, this is King David, who was the author of this psalm. And, and if you joined us a number of weeks back, Pastor Scott taught through this. And, and it says that this is while he was feigning madness before Abimelech. And so he was on the run from Saul, and he goes to a different country. He goes to this king, and as he's there in front of Abimelech, he's acting like he's insane. And then he's driven out, and he's hiding, and he's being hunted down by King Saul. So do you think he knows what it's like to have a brother, literally one of his own, assaulting him, attacking him, wanting to see harm come to him? Absolutely he does. But he also understands that how we think and how we act has a direct impact on the lives that we live. And this is a very popular psalm. Peter's already referenced this in chapter uh, 1, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, the author of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 5, quotes Psalm 34. So it seems that Psalm 34 was a very popular psalm with the early church. And I think for good reason. When you look here, we, we see that there are great blessings to come when we know how to think and live, when we have the right pursuits, the right desires. Let me just give you two verses before we look at what Peter says here. 1 Timothy 2.2 Pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So again, there's the idea of submission and sanctification and you're doing this with the civil authorities. Why? So that you can lead a nice quiet life. How you think and how you pray and your desires is going to directly impact your living. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you. Again, the body of Christ, whether it's New Testament or the people of God in the Old Testament, the desire is we want to live good, blessed, rich lives. Well, how do we do that? One way we do that is to make sure we've got the right attitudes and the right actions because it directly impacts the lives that we live. When you look here at um, what Peter says, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. Here's the self-restraint. Keep your tongue from evil and, and your lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And so why does he exhort his brethren and us today to, to live in a non-retaliatory manner? Why does he, he exhort us to give a blessing and not seek vengeance? Because he understands that our lives are directly connected to a proper attitude of how we think and how we respond to others. That's going to impact the lives around us, whether we have lives of peace or lives of turmoil. You know, this is the same thing that King David wrote. You go back to, this is actually a quote from Psalm 34. It's, it's not exactly what Peter has, and it doesn't mean that it's not accurate. Peter wrote what he did under the inspiration of the Spirit, but it is Psalm 34, and David's, these are his words from Psalm 34. Who was the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so he says, if you want a, a nice, quiet, prosperous, blessed life, well, guess what? you got to hold back on some things. You can't just fly out there fast and loose and guns blazing and just think that you can, can retaliate and, and, and you know, vol go back and forth with a volley of evil words and deeds and, and have a nice, quiet life. You've got to use self-restraint. You have to, to control yourself and control those desires. If you really desire to live a blessed life, you're going to restrain your tongue when you feel like lashing out. You're going to turn away from committing evil acts and, and specifically here in retaliation. You're going to pursue peace. You're going to desire peace. First you have peace with God, then you have peace with others. And again, as we saw in Romans, remember, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And so you do all that you can to maintain peace. That's what David taught. That's what Peter teaches. We see here this sanctified and submissive self-restraint. It not only results in this, this blessed life, but also in God's gracious attention. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those 
who do evil. Peter's giving another reason here for sanctified and submissive living. There was the positive that was just presented, that there's gracious attention upon the righteous, and then there's the negative. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And, And so the Lord doesn't respond to everyone in the same way. He will respond to us accordingly. When you think of the eyes and the ears of the Lord towards the righteous, this means it's God's attention and his care for his people. Again, as David was being pursued by unrighteous Saul, and that's what we believe Psalm 34 is referring to, God knew David's situation. God knew what was in Saul's heart. He knew that David was being treated unjustly, and God provided for him. The eyes and the ears of the Lord were aware of and attentive to David's situation. And David was provided for. Likewise, those of us who strive to live sanctified and submissive lives, even when it's difficult, whether we're looking here at 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, or all the way back from chapter 2, verse 11, up to this point, there are going to be times when we are going to have to struggle and strive to be submissive and sanctified. But the Lord will bless that. The Lord will honor that. And so we see here, we have his gracious attention upon the righteous. And to think of the Lord, that that he would pay attention to us. I think of what Job said in Job 17, 7. What is man that you magnify him, and that you're concerned about him? Who am I, who are you, that the creator of all things would be aware of what's going on and concerned with our lives. But he is. Psalm 8, 4, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? We know this is applied to Christ, but this applies to us as well. Again, who are we that God would be concerned for us? Yet he is. His eyes and his ears are attentive to us. But here is the negative as we wrap it up this morning. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. A little more that David offers here that Peter doesn't include. David says, those who commit evil, the face of the Lord, the attention of the Lord, he sees what they're doing. He's aware of their wickedness, and he will deal with them. Vengeance is his, and he will deal with all who practice evil. He will deal with them in a righteous way. And as we know, evildoers often here on earth get away with their sinful actions, but not in the eyes of God, not before the throne of God. Sometimes it seems like there's no accountability and no justice, no vindication, but the Lord is aware of every action, good or evil. And we need to rest in the truth, the the understanding that he will deal with all those who rebel against him. So what do we take away from this passage this morning? We are to desire and pursue sanctified and submissive attitudes and actions and practice self-restraint. We have assurance that God will vindicate us, vindicate those who are treated unfairly. We have assurance that God will bring the justice upon the wicked. But I think Peter's emphasis is not there. He's not saying, guess what? They're going to get what's coming to them. No, what he's saying is, my dear brethren... Do all that you can to avoid that. And so have the right attitude. Have the right actions. Bless, don't curse. Have self-restraint. If you desire a good, rich, fruitful life, in your personal life, in the congregation, you follow these things, and the eyes and the ears of the Lord will be upon you. And so as we wrap up this morning and wrap up that section of 1 Peter, as I said earlier, I see that manifested here every week. But we need to excel still more. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to spend time in your word, uh, to be exhorted, to be challenged. And I pray that we will take these truths and that we'll be honest with ourselves and and see where we fail, and see where we need to grow, and that we will uh, just desire, Lord, and strive to make progress in those areas. 
so that we will bring glory to your name and, and strength to this congregation. Father, I thank you for blessing us with salvation and giving us all things in common in Christ. But Father, perhaps there's someone here this morning who is not uh, right with you, that they are still striving to, to live in opposition to you and to do their own thing, to live their own lives, to, uh, to lead their own path. And yet we understand, Lord, that uh, they have to come to you to be right, that, that if they are not reconciled to you through your Son, then they are going to stand before your face in judgment. And Father, I pray this morning that, that someone here would understand the wonderful sacrifice that Christ has made to, to bring salvation to us, to, uh, to live a perfect life, to go to the cross on our behalf, to absorb your wrath, and that all who call upon his name will be saved. Father, I pray that someone this morning, you would work in their hearts, their minds, and, and soften them and open them up to the truth of the gospel so that they too can have the wonderful, glorious hope that we have today. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.